From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. If you've ever groaned, oh, my aching back, (laughs) you're not alone. As we age, it's estimated that 8 out of 10 adults experience back pain at one time or another. On today's program, we'll learn more about one common cause of back pain, spinal stenosis. Also on the program, the mental health benefits of tidying up from a Mayo Clinic expert. And I think that one of the ways that um, her method can be helpful for folks is just think of like cognitive efficiency. Is She's sticking with one category. So from a cognitive standpoint, there's less flip-flopping and decision-making that has to be made. And a Mayo Clinic program that's helping cancer patients quit tobacco. That's this week's program. Up next. Tracy, life's normal wear and tear takes its toll on your body. I can attest to that. (laughs) And aging also affects your spine. One thing that can happen is narrowing of the spinal canal, causing pressure on the spinal cord and on the nerve roots. It's called spinal stenosis. It can occur in your cervical spine, your neck, or your lumbar spine, your lower back, where it's much more common. It might begin as a tingling in your hand, arm, foot, or leg, and progress to total loss of sensation and function, muscle weakness that may make it difficult to walk. Spinal stenosis is almost always painful. Fortunately, there are multiple options available to treat spinal stenosis, including surgery. And here to discuss is Mayo Clinic orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Bradford Courier. Welcome to the program, Dr. Courier. It's good to see you. Nice to see you, Tracy. Dr. Courier, nice to have you on the program, because I know you're a busy guy, because all of us are getting older. But one of the things that can happen, and it seems fairly frequent, is a problem with, with the spine. Narrowing, spurring, degeneration. Tell us how that happens and uh, what happens. Well, that degeneration is really just part of being human, Tom. Uh, we all get degeneration as we age, and that uh, degeneration can cause bone spurs or the discs, the shock absorbers between the vertebrae can become narrowed, and all of those things can lead to narrowing of the spinal canal, and that is the definition of spinal stenosis. So it's narrowing of the canal that it then can put pressure on the uh, cord or the nerve roots, right? That's correct. And if it's in the upper part of the spine, the cervical spine, then is it more likely to put pressure on the cord than on the nerve roots or either? It could be either. Uh, I'd be happy to show you the anatomy if you'd like. (laughs) Yeah, you brought lots of models with you. This is going to be one of those ones where people are going to want to look up the YouTube video to see. Okay. Just as you mentioned, Tom, the spine is separated into three segments. There's the cervical spine, which is normally curved backwards this way into lordosis. From the side view, the thoracic spine is curved into kyphosis, and the lumbar spine is curved into lordosis again. The spinal cord runs all the way from the brain down into the lumbar spine, and it goes inside that hole, the spinal canal, that is made up of the front of the spine, which is the vertebral body, and the back of the spine, which is the posterior arch. And those two pieces joined together create the spinal canal. The spine moves at each of these levels through the disc in the front and the facet joints in the back, and we call that a motion segment when there's two vertebrae separated by a disc. We also call that a level. So when your doctor talks about levels of the spine, we're talking about a motion segment. And at each of those motion segments, there's a nerve that comes off 
on both the left and the right, and those are called nerve roots. Those nerves in the cervical spine come out these little holes called foramina, and those nerves coalesce and go down into the arms on both sides. And in the lumbar spine, those nerves come together and go into the legs. And in the sacrum, those nerves go to the bowel and bladder. And that's why the symptoms of spinal stenosis vary so much based on where in the spine the spinal stenosis takes place. And there's not a lot of extra room there. Well, there is some extra room. Uh, About 5% of us are born with a narrowed spinal canal, and that's a relatively narrowed spinal canal. But it can get a lot smaller than that, and that extra room is normally filled with veins and, and fatty tissue, so there's kind of a buffer in there. Let's talk about the most common symptoms, uh, both of spinal stenosis up in the neck region and lower down in the lumbar spine where it's much more common. So in the cervical spine, just as you mentioned before, it can affect the spinal cord, and those symptoms are going to be quite a bit different than if it affects these nerve roots as they come out those little holes or foramina. So if the spinal cord is compressed centrally, then the person will have a lot of the symptoms that Tracy mentioned of they may find that their hands don't work quite as well, their hands may actually atrophy a bit, and they have trouble buttoning buttons, they have trouble distinguishing a nickel from a quarter in their fingers, trouble handwriting. So those are the problems you can get with your hands, but it's also really common to have problems with your balance. And falling is a very frequent problem of myelopathy. Myelopathy means that the spinal cord is being compressed. And that's all uh, related to the fact that the discs are wearing out and the joints between the vertebrae are wearing out. And then they, then you get some spurring, and that puts pressure on the cord or nerve roots. That's, that's the most common cause of spinal stenosis is degenerative spinal stenosis. And it's just part of being human. Everybody ages and gets bone spurs over time. The discs narrow, and they may press into the spinal cord or narrow these little nerve foramina through bone spurs, and so these things just happen as a normal part of aging. The nerve roots can also be compressed, and that would give a different set of symptoms. So you wouldn't have the balance problems. You'd have a single nerve root involved that would cause weakness, numbness, and tingling in that one distribution of that nerve. In the lumbar spine, you won't have any problems with your arms because the problem is only at the level uh, where the stenosis takes place or below. So if the problem is in the lumbar spine, those cervical roots have already come out, and they're okay. In the lumbar spine, an isolated nerve root could be involved, so that could be numbness, tingling, weakness, or pain in the leg, or it could be more central stenosis, and even though the spinal cord isn't damaged, the central stenosis can cause a more diffuse pain or problems with the legs, mostly when you stand and walk. Why wouldn't you have it in both the cervical and the lumbar? I mean, if your spine is doing this, you'd think... It seems to me that it would make sense that it would be all the way down. You're absolutely right, Tracy. So, so many people have both cervical and lumbar stenosis, Mm -hmm. especially if they were one of those unlucky 5% that had a narrowed spinal canal to begin with. We are talking with Dr. Brad Courier. He is an orthopedic spine surgeon at the Mayo Clinic. We're talking about spinal stenosis. We want to talk about treatment options. Unfortunately, there are many. But before we do that, in addition to taking a history, which would help you determine whether or not, the fa- in fact, the patient has stenosis, what else can you use to make a, a, a definitive diagnosis? Sure. Uh, MRI scan is the definitive study. Uh, some people can't have MRI scans, so we still do use CT myelograms 
uh, or just a plain CT scan, but the MRI scan is really the best study. We often get plain x-rays, too, because uh, stenosis can be caused by instability or deformity of the spine. So the uh, MRI or CT scan will actually show you the a, the extent of the problem and exactly where the location of the pressure is. That's right. And what can we do about it? There's a lot of people who have this problem. I'm also interested in prevention, but we'll do treatment first. Okay. <laughs> well, great. Well, prevention and treatment, uh, a lot of the same things. So okay. uh, maintaining or obtaining ideal body weight is very, very important. Having good posture, whether you're sitting, standing, walking, that's very important. And the vast majority of people with spinal stenosis don't need an operation. And so we see a lot of patients that never come to surgery. If the stenosis is in the cervical spine, it it becomes more important and more urgent because compression of the spinal cord in the cervical spine can lead to some really dangerous problems. In the lumbar spine, uh, you may have some pain. Occasionally you have uh, weakness and numbness. Uh, that isn't an urgency to have surgery. So we watch a lot of people. We always try non-operative treatment first unless they have a progressive or severe neurological deficit or unless it's myelopathy. So if the spinal cord is involved with myelopathy, then we're more aggressive. The vast majority, say that again, the vast majority of people who have spinal stenosis do not need surgery. That's correct. All right, talk about the other uh, options. You talked about uh, maintaining a, a healthy weight. Posture is important. What else? How else do you uh, treat these patients without surgery? So physical therapy, uh, core stabilization exercises are very helpful for back pain prevention as well as uh, spinal stenosis prevention to the extent that it can be prevented. Um, and uh, steroid injections are often used. Uh, the literature on steroid injections isn't conclusive, but we often try that, uh, and it helps a lot of people. It may be temporary, but it can help. Uh, and medications. We like to use just over-the-counter medications such as Tylenol or anti-inflammatory medications. So what do the, the, the steroid injections, that's cortisone or, or some right. form of cortisone, what, what do they do? How do they help? Well, it decreases inflammation. And so nerves that are compressed uh, may uh, be painful or they may cause problems because they're compressed, but also because there's some inflammation surrounding them. And the steroid injections help with that inflammation. It may be more than that, though, because there's a lot that we don't understand completely. There have been studies that show that people that just have local anesthetic injected do just as well as those that have the steroid. And it's the steroid that provides the anti-inflammatory effect. So there's a lot about injections that we don't fully understand, but they do help some people especially in those conditions that are self-limited, like a disc herniation. That can cause narrowing of the spinal canal, but a disc herniation can go away with time, whereas a bone spur won't. How often can you have these injections? Well, there's no absolute answer, but usually we say about three or four per year is about uh, the most that you should have so that you don't get problems with the steroid. If it comes to surgery, mm-hmm. uh, tell us again what the, what the indications for the absolute indications for surgery are and what you do. Certainly, if the person has myelopathy, we're inclined to do surgery. So that means there's pressure on the spinal cord. The spinal cord. cord. Radiculopathy, we're less inclined to do surgery unless the pain is significant and really disabling or the weakness is progressive or severe or disabling. So it depends a lot on the age of the individual. It depends on their occupation. Uh, Some people can't have any weakness at all to be able to 
uh, get by with their daily activities. Whereas right, other- sorry, just let me interrupt once. So myelopathy is pressure on the cord. Radiculopathy is pressure on the nerve root. That's exactly right. Okay. Yeah, so if you have uh, myelopathy, again, if you have loss of bowel or bladder control, I said that those nerves have to go down through the spinal canal to get to the bowel and bladder. That's a really important, but usually a late and uncommon symptom. But that gets our attention for sure. If you have progressive weakness, if you're falling because of spinal cord compression, that's a really serious finding. And what do you do? How do you solve this problem? So if we operate, we have lots of different options, and we can operate from the front of the spine or the back of the spine or both or even from the side of the spine. And the uh, type of surgery we choose is based on a lot of things, including how narrow it is, uh, where the narrowing takes place. Is it centrally or is it off in those little foramina on the side? Is it in the neck or the lumbar spine? Is the spine deformed or unstable? All of those things are major factors. You may have heard about spondylolisthesis. That's a slippage of one vertebra relative to the next. And usually if we have slippage, then we're adding a fusion. If it's unstable or deformed, we're usually adding a fusion. And what that means is joining two or more bones together. And they stiffen and they're fused together for life. A decompression means taking pressure off the nerves. So every surgery that you have for spinal stenosis, regardless of where it is, will involve a decompression, taking pressure off the nerves, and it may or may not have a fusion associated with it. And that's dependent on whether or not you have had to remove enough bone to to resolve the problem that the spine becomes unstable. Then you would add the fusion. So it can become unstable by what we do, exactly right, uh, or it can be unstable before we operate. So someone with a slippage of the vertebra, spondylolisthesis, or someone with a major scoliosis, a significant deformity of the spine, or a lot of people have what's called a flat back, where they're really tipping forward. And uh, many of these patients will require a fusion. In the cervical spine, we very frequently have to do a fusion because they may get more deformed after surgery if we do just a decompression. Can you know if you have stenosis in your future based on what your relatives had? Yes, uh, mm-hmm. to some extent. It's not 100%, but it is. there is definitely a genetic predisposition. So tell us about minimally invasive spine surgery, because we see it advertised on TV, Mm -hmm. you see it in in print, it says that uh, the surgery is minutes instead of hours, it says there's less bleeding, you can do it as an outpatient, you're up walking in two hours. Tell us about minimally invasive spine surgery, and how often do you use it? So... My partners and I use minimally invasive spine surgery when we feel it's the right thing for the patient. And so we have a lot of things in our toolbox, and sometimes a minimally invasive procedure makes the most sense because it is uh, more sparing to the muscles surrounding it. It is a quicker operation sometimes, not always. Uh, and oftentimes the amount of time in the hospital is a little bit less with minimally invasive surgery. One of my partners likes to say MIS stands for minimally invasive surgery. He said you have to be careful that you don't do minimally impactful surgery because there's a lot of surgery that is done in minutes that is a very quick operation with a Band-Aid that does absolutely no good or may do harm. And so you have to tailor that surgery to the problem. Are there any new treatments for spinal stenosis? Well, there are some new treatments. So, for example, in lumbar stenosis, uh, there are some uh, less invasive procedures, putting in an implant that uh, flexes your spine and stabilizes it somewhat. There are some procedures where uh, some ligament is scraped. 
these surgeries haven't stood the test of time, uh, and there's not uh, nearly as much literature about them, and so I would let my neighbor have that before I signed up for it personally. Any clinical trials that you're working on? So uh, we are working on clinical trials. Uh, there, there are some special implants that we have to replace those facet joints, and that's a clinical trial that's uh, being undertaken right now. Uh, but uh, the vast majority of surgery that we do for lumbar or cervical stenosis is a straightforward decompression with or without a fusion, depending on whether that's indicated. Well, none of us want to have spine surgery, even if it's minimally invasive. So tell us again. Tracy wants to know, how do we have prevention? I'm going to sit up as straight as possible and listen to this, listen to your tips. Yes, that's exactly right. So uh, it's maintaining and obtaining ideal body weight. That's probably the biggest problem that we have uh, in this country for sure. Uh, But your posture is so important. So people with spinal stenosis like to bend forward because when you bend forward for lumbar stenosis, that opens up your spinal canal a bit. So these people are often using walkers or or the grocery cart, uh, and they find that when they sit, they don't hurt anymore. That's because your spine bends forward a little bit when you sit. And so you want to maintain good posture, but sometimes you just can't because the spinal canal is too tight. All right, spinal stenosis, narrowing of the spinal canal, causing pressure on the spinal cord or the nerve roots. It can occur in the neck, but more commonly in the lower back. It's usually the result of degenerative changes in the spine, a side effect of getting older. And the majority of patients who have spinal stenosis can be treated without surgery. Dr. Brad Curry, orthopedic spine surgeon at the Mayo Clinic, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Tracy. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll discuss the spring cleaning craze that's sweeping the country. But is it good for your mental health? And later on in the show, helping cancer patients quit tobacco. Want to hear and see more Mayo Clinic Radio? Subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Radio podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Or check out more than 350 Mayo Clinic Radio segments on video, including this one, now available on YouTube. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Almost everyone has decided to go on a diet at some point in hopes of losing a few pounds and improving his or her health. With a nearly constant flow of new fad diets being pushed online and on social media, it can be difficult to know which diet will be most helpful for you. While plenty of the popular diets will help you lose weight and may improve aspects of your health, Dr. Stephen Kopetsky, a Mayo Clinic cardiologist, says one diet stands out for its proven ability to help people live longer. So here's a guessing game. It really helps us reduce many diseases, not just heart disease, also Alzheimer's disease. It reduces almost all cancers. It reduces arthritis. It's an anti-inflammatory diet, and so you can have less joint pain. It's one of the most studied diets we have and has been shown to be very helpful for us. It's less restrictive than many fad diets you find online. It's easy, and it can be cheap. It involves eating more fruits and veggies, fish and lean meats, whole grains, and healthy oils. What is it? It's the Mediterranean diet, and Dr. Kopetsky says it could really improve your health. And in other news, do you occasionally forget your grocery list, the name of the personal trainer you liked at the gym, or where you put your car keys? You are not alone. Everyone forgets things occasionally. Some degree of memory problems and a modest decline in other thinking skills are fairly common parts of aging. But there are strategies that might help. Consider these simple seven ways to sharpen your memory. 
include physical activity in your daily routine. Physical activity increases blood flow to your whole body, including your brain. Stay mentally active. Just as physical activity helps keep your body in shape, mentally stimulating activities help keep your brain in shape and might keep memory loss at bay. Socialize regularly. Get organized. You're more likely to forget things if your home is cluttered and your notes are in disarray. Sleep well. Sleep plays an important role in helping you consolidate your memories so you can recall them down the road. Most adults need seven to nine hours of sleep a day. Eat a healthy diet and manage chronic conditions. Talk to your healthcare provider if you're concerned about memory loss. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. It is a craze that's sweeping the country, thanks to Marie Kondo and her Marie method of cleaning clutter. People are taking their belongings one by one and deciding, I think you better do this part. <laughs> you just can't take it, no, can I you? No, I can't do Yeah, it. they just want to know, does it spark joy? Spark, you hold the thing, and yeah. if it sparks joy, you keep it. If it doesn't, it's time to set it aside. But beyond the physical act of cleaning clutter, are there any mental health benefits to tidying up as well? Here to discuss is Mayo Clinic psychologist and co-chair of Mayo Clinic's Division of Integrated Behavioral Health, Dr. Craig Sachuk. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Sachuk. Great. Well, thank you for having me back. There is a psychological benefit to getting rid of stuff. Right. Yeah, I, there, there's a psychological benefit for keeping our environment more organized, but also, ironically, it can become a psychological problem with um, having too many things and being disorganized. This, uh, does it spark joy? Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me what that feels like. I mean, if I pick up my new driver, I, that sort of sparks a little joy, but I can't imagine picking up an item in my closet mm-hmm. and trying to decide whether or not that sparks joy. I- right. And, and Marie Kondo's method, uh, really is a, uh, a different pathway to get to the same outcome. And certain pathways work for some people, other pathways may work for others. But I think the key thing that she's, uh, keying in on is, we acquire things for reasons. There's beliefs that go behind that, whether it's like this is a, a great bargain, I can't pass this up, or this item is sentimental and it means something uh, to me, or I can use this item for some reason in some way someday. The problem is, and, and much of our culture is very much consumer, consumer-driven consumer consumerism, is that that's an overly applied principle. So we start to acquire more and more things that we actually end up using. So the irony in all this is that we may end up acquiring a lot of things and not using them and still hold on to them based upon the beliefs that we use to acquire them in the first place. I'm sure you're not surprised that her method, you know, it starts with the first thing is clothing, mm-hmm. pull everything out of that closet, right. uh, then books, you know, right. things like so stuff that people tend to have a lot of. Mm-hmm. But I love it that the sentimental items are the very last step because yeah. those are the ones that are hardest for folks. Very much so. And, and and that's where we look at that degree of emotional attachment with items. So again, we buy all these things and acquire them for a variety of different reasons. And I think the one of the ways that um, uh, her method can be helpful for folks is just think of like cognitive efficiency. So rather than going um, 
room by room and just dealing, jumping from one category to the next. I'm dealing with paperwork here, and then I've got some knickknacks over here, and then I've got um, some clothing over here. Is she's sticking with one category? So from a cognitive standpoint, there's less flip-flopping and decision making that has to be made and focusing in on that. But you're right, there's a, a method, you know, to this as well too, with moving from things that have more immediate utilitarian value to things that are informational and interesting to things that maybe are a little bit more heavily weighted emotionally, so that by the time you get to the more sentimental things, you've had some experience with that so far. Why does decluttering help? In one way, sometimes it's just a way to like regulate emotions, so a way of just dealing with the stress. But we think of almost any time in our lives where we've put a new uh, coat of paint in a room, reorganized something, got our closet to a better place, it just physiologically feels better and more relaxing. You think of the stimulation that goes in through your eyeballs and into your brain, that can help calm things down. So actually, it really does have that that way of calming ourselves. And it also um, reduces some unintended problems, too. Like, where are my keys? Where's my wallet? Where's that thing I'm looking for? And we're digging through like a pile of, of clothing. That in and of itself is very stressful and can unintendedly create time pressures in our lives. So really what you see in your environment, if it's less cluttered and more tidy, then you could potentially feel better. Yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. And again, it just, from a physiologic standpoint, it helps to settle down. Sometimes it gives us that sense of accomplishment that we see like a kitchen that's just a mess and we devote some time to putting things back together and we can take a step back and we get it done. I think, they're, again, part of the reality, too, is that we live in these places. So it's not like we get these places tidied up and we put a velvet rope across it like we would in a museum and it just stays that way. These rooms are often in a constant state of flux, so we've got to be okay with having some uh, flexibility between things being more organized and disorganized as well. Well, and managing stuff, Mm -hmm. I mean, three-car garages, four-car garages, you know, people have got these big homes and they're completely packed full of things. That is making a big mental drain on people. Very much so. And, And I think that this is where, you know, when we buy our homes and then that have rooms and then within each room there are things that are naturally built to hold things like I've got a drawer in the kitchen that naturally holds, you know, the uh, the cutlery. Um, we kind of use this term called logical capacity, like that drawer, that space is logically built to usually handle the amount of stuff that we would actually use. So for, you know, cutlery. So once we start finding that my cutlery drawer is full, but I've got more cutlery and I'm starting to put it in like a closet or these other storage areas, that's got to tell you something. And just even asking yourself, you know, do I have an immediate plan for using this? Um, if uh, the time came up in the future where I actually did need to use it, where would I go and get it at that time rather than constantly planning for the future? So I guess maybe the Con Marie method is taking off because I think you said don't try to take anything to Goodwill or the Salvation Army. They're full up. It's very full. Yeah. <laughs> Are you surprised at how this is sweeping the nation? No, because I'm a psychologist, so we get swept. <laughs> You're all in favor. We, we could get swept, you know, pretty easily by things. Uh, but the things that, again, the things that I like is uh, the irony is people get these things and they're actually not being used for their purpose. Um, so being able to actually declutter, but a spe- but especially more importantly, getting 
these things to people who are more in need of these things that can find these and they'd be absolute treasures. I think from an altruistic standpoint, I think this is great. Um, so I, I really am a big fan of this, whether it's Marie Kondo's method or any other method for that matter. I think it's just very, very good human trait to be able to share and to get things out to people who need them. We both have moved to new homes within the last few years. And did you notice that when you were moving to your new place that you did this on some level? Akula does it all. My spouse does it all. I mean, she gets the dumpster and everything goes. And she tries to do it when I'm not there. I like her dumpster method. Yeah. I mean, you know, I wanted to save my notes for my biochemistry course in medical school. You know, those are long gone. Long gone. And probably just as well. Just as well. So how do you help a couple? Uh, who, uh, one spouse is tidy and organized and the other one is a, a clutterer. You must have had this situation. To, oh, with, without a doubt. Do? And, it, and it's really trying to find some common ground and coming a little bit more into the middle. I think, you know, um, people vary, you know, really truly in terms of their tolerance of clutter. You know, for one person that may not look cluttered at all to the other person and may just be screaming in their brain of things being disorganized. Um, but you try to look at in what ways is the clutter causing problems in day-to-day living, whether it's causing you a significant amount of distress or physiologic reactivity or causing you problems, you know, with your roommate or with your spouse or with your partner. So whenever those problems are starting to build up, then it actually should create some motivation to be able to work together. But it really does involve coming into the middle because for somebody who really likes their stuff and likes to clutter, it's unrealistic to assume that they should lead a minimalistic life as well. Uh, we've been talking about the mental health benefits of getting organized with Mayo Clinic psychologist and co-chair of Mayo Clinic's Division of Integrated Behavioral Health, Dr. Greg Sachuk. Dr. Sachuk, thanks for, so much for being with us. Great. Thank you so much. The Mayo Clinic Cancer Center recently received a grant from the National Cancer Institute to help cancer patients who use tobacco get treatment to help them kick the habit. The two-year, $500,000 grant is part of the National Cancer Institute's Cancer Moonshot Initiative, and it'll fund programs at Mayo Clinic Cancer Center and the Mayo Clinic Nicotine Dependence Center. Now, the grant will help expand tobacco cessation treatment services for cancer patients at Mayo Clinic. And here to discuss is the medical director for the Mayo Clinic Nicotine Dependence Center, Dr. Jay Taylor-Hayes, and Mayo Clinic hematologist, Dr. Carrie Thompson. Welcome both of you back to the program. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Uh, Good to have you both here. And I think the first question is, isn't it a little late to quit smoking when you've already been diagnosed (laughs) with cancer? Well, that's a great question. Um, there are many cancers that are related to tobacco use, but there are many cancer patients who have other malignancies that aren't related to tobacco use. So there's there's many advantages to meeting people at the time of a, a cancer diagnosis. We know that smoking may interfere with their treatment, so chemotherapy levels may be altered up or down with the concurrent nicotine use. Also, it's a teachable moment, so people are generally pretty motivated to improve their health when they're diagnosed with a malignancy. So it's actually a a great time to, to reach individuals. And lastly, there's other treatments of cancer that can increase um, the risk of developing another malignancy, such as radiation therapy. And so even if the cancer isn't directly related to current smoking, we want to do whatever we can to improve their long-term health. Dr. Hayes, is the smoking mm-hmm. cessation different for cancer patients than it is other regular patients? No. 
the same things help them quit as anyone else. In fact, you know, it, the cancer moment <laughs> is really a teachable moment. It's like when people come in the hospital and suddenly they're in a, an environment where they can't smoke and they have an illness often that has brought them there being caused by tobacco. So cancer uh, diagnosis is a teachable moment for them. And, and so we think that um, they have the same opportunity as everyone else, uh, but the difference is now they have this new diagnosis. And all the things that Dr. Thompson just talked about that may be benefited, including their overall health, but the immediate treatment in front of them may, may be provided in a better way, less toxicity, better quality of life when they complete treatment if they're able to stop smoking. The uh, smoking rate in the general population is about 20%. Is it similar in cancer patients? About 20% of the patients that you see are smokers? So so that number's changed. Overall population prevalence now is probably closer to 14 to 15%. So oh, wow. we've really done a great job. Oh, no kidding. Uh, yeah, catch up, Dr. Scheiss. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's changed pretty rapidly, in fact. And in Minnesota, the same thing. We see about a 14, 15% adult population prevalence of smoking. We think it's the same in cancer patients. There may be some cancer diagnoses where the prevalence is higher, and you might guess what those are. So the ones that are highly correlated with tobacco use, like lung cancer, head and neck cancers, where tobacco is the primary cause, we'll, we'll, we will see higher prevalence of smoking in those groups. Yeah, we always think of, of lung cancer being related to tobacco use. Head and neck cancer, you mentioned. Are there others that are smoking-related, Carrie? There are other other malignancies, such as bladder cancer. That's not well known that, that smoking can increase that risk. Um, some GI malignancies are also increased, um, have an increased risk in, in smokers. So gastrointestinal, colon, stomach, yeah. for example? Correct. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, the most effective methods. You mentioned that they're they're the same for cancer patients as for the regular population. What are those? What what's you must be doing something right if the smoking rate is all the way down to fourteen or fifteen percent. So so how are you doing it now? It's really uh, simple, not easy. The simple answer is it's a combination of behavioral therapy, typically counseling and support, and effective. Uh, medication treatment to reduce withdrawal and reduce those urges to smoke that really drive people to relapse so quickly when they try to quit. Being diagnosed with cancer, though, is a pretty stressful time. Mm -hmm. And uh, so a double stress to try to give up smoking, which helps you relieve stress. Are you finding that it's extra hard for cancer patients, or what is some of the response that you're getting? I think that teachable moment actually is more uh, driving pe- people's behavior as opposed to the stress. When we meet people in the in the cancer clinic, they know that they shouldn't be smoking. They've probably tried to quit many times in the past, and they want to do whatever they can to control what feels like an uncontrollable situation. And therefore, I find that patients are actually very motivated and ready to um, seek nicotine cessation at, at that time. Uh, and not just the patient, but oftentimes the family members as well. Sure. One other mm-hmm. response to that is um, stress, yes, is increased in the short term when people try to quit smoking. But we're, we're really talking about a few days where the stress levels are very high. If you look at all smokers, 
and you look at them a few weeks later, psychological distress from whatever source is remarkably reduced in people who are successfully abstinent from smoking. So you mentioned uh, behavioral therapy, and I want to hear a little bit more about that. Behavioral therapies are really, uh, so I'm not a behavioral therapist, but so I have to think about it quite simply. It's really what I tell myself and what I do. Those things need to change. So we call it, the fancy term is cognitive behavioral is one approach. It's changing the way you think about the use of this drug and changing the patterns of behavior that surround the use of the drug, whatever it is. In this case, it's uh, tobacco. So rather than telling yourself, I got to have one, I got to have one, you start changing the conversation in your head. So, Dr. Thompson, one other question. If, uh, is there evidence that if you get a cancer patient to stop smoking, they'll live longer? I think there's evidence in the general population of, of that, certainly. We know that they'll have better responses to chemotherapy in that they're, we're taking away the potential drug-drug interactions. Um, one of the major issues for cancer patients long-term is also cardiovascular disease. So if we decrease the risk of nicotine uh, exposure, that may help people live longer. And then, of course, the uh, risk of developing another smoking-related cancer or, or a new one. Uh, so I think there's a lot of, a lot of good evidence on, on why this is uh, so important for our patients. We've been talking about a National Cancer Institute grant that Mayo Clinic is using to help cancer patients quit using tobacco with the medical director for the Mayo Clinic Nicotine Dependence Center, Dr. J. Taylor Hayes, and Mayo Clinic hematologist, blood specialist, Dr. Carrie Thompson. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.